Hey everybody, welcome to a sweet new episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. I'm your host, Ned Buskirk, your, uh, I mean, not always, but sometimes creatively conscious mortality um, host, facilitator, crying human, insanely in relationship with reality because this is absurd. Can we get below the conscious relationship we have? The fill that Excel spreadsheet out. Get, use Google Maps to get here. Get this thing done officially on the calendar. <laughs> I'm just really thinking a lot about like, oh, oh, there's like lots of unconscious, subconscious things I'm not accessing that more directly relate to the fact that this is fragile and fleeting and it's going to end any moment. Truly. So um, <laughs> it isn't yet. Thank goodness. I don't want it to soon. But I'll tell you, this episode, this conversation I'm about to share with you helped me uh, just barely begin because of what the guest has lived through and done with their life so far. It helped me begin things I haven't even started, which is it feels ridiculous to admit that, running an organization called You're Going to Die for over 10 years and having the feeling like, oh God, I have so much to learn. And boy, did I learn a lot in the conversation today. And I, I'm, I'm doing my best as usual. I'm going to cut to the chase with the introductions for Minna Jan, this episode's guest. Because the conversation is worth getting to quickly. First of all, I'll talk about this with Minna, and I'll talk about this more later in the episode. I met Minna in one of our workshops. We do them, we've almost done them every month during the pandemic. And it's grief and healing with writing and music. And, and that's where I met Minna because of the, the web of connection in our community bringing us together there. Uh, so grateful for that presence. And you'll understand why real soon in just minutes. So Minna is a writer, but the list of who they are in the world is really uh, feeling endless. But it does deserve all acknowledgement. And, and mostly I'm going to do that in the show notes. And I've been thinking about how much Minna has been up to with their life and like how many minutes of my day do I waste? And I'm not saying Minna doesn't, doesn't get to waste time, quote unquote. In fact, need to maybe, and, and knows that more than ever, like having the place to like not do all these things, but wow, to someone doing so much and then feeling grateful that I get to receive them here and share our conversation with you. Minna Jan is a child of indigenous Finnish, Sami, and South Asian Indian immigrants. They are disabled, non-binary, and queer, an artist, writer, plant, and bee steward, and racial equity educator. Minna is interested in collective sense-making, liminality, and liberation. They are in training as a Soto 
Zen Buddhist priest, and they think that and everything else they're interested in comes down to showing up again and again and trying to meet this moment. They're most interested in being okay, caring well for all beings and enjoying their little life a little more. And I think you're going to get all of that by listening to this conversation on You're Going to Die, the podcast with Minna Jan. I think there's a relationship between monsters and ghosts. And uh, lately I've been trying on, I've been trying on the idea that I am a monster. And, mm. and I think by that, I mean that I'm a mixture, right? I, I think that, that our kind of cultural love of, of duality, you know, male and female, black and white, uh, day and night makes it so that those kind of liminalists who, who occupy the space between worlds that, or who occupy the space between or even outside of gender mm-hmm. that we, for example, um, or, you know, I'm mixed race. You know, there's so many mm-hmm. ways in, in my body and lived experience that I'm a mixture. I'm a meeting of cultures mm-hmm. or moments. And those things that are a mixture are usually what we call monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the thing that's part animal, part human, or, you know, part darkness, part scream, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I think that like honoring how, what I am has been made monstrous um, and kind of taking that back and saying, yeah, I am a monster. And I tend to, to my ghosts and my ancestors help me. And, mm. you know, and I'm, and I think there's something in that reclaiming that is an acknowledgement of my need to develop a better relationship with anger. No, I don't have a very well-developed anger body and, mm. uh, and, and I need to work on that. Mm. Um, thank you. Uh, when you, you know, listening to you describe yourself like as a version of a monster, it's just so dependent on place. And I don't know why right. I'm sort of going, why I'm led to to ask this particular line of questioning. But, you know, I think about people wanting to leave the United States during this time, you know, feeling like the threat of being here at all and, and wonder if you relate to that and wonder if you can speak to, you know, that there's places to move where you, you suddenly aren't a monster. Like that there could be a place in the world where you would be held and not be that. Um, but also knowing you have answered it maybe a little bit already because of this reclaiming, you know, this idea that that's, that's like the work here is you claiming your monstrosity, you know, um, anything coming up around that, uh, these questions sometimes will be like, I'm thinking these five things at once. <laughs> what, that's, what do you think about any of those? Let's throw some spaghetti at the wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think, okay, I don't know. Let's be nonlinear here. Yeah, okay. Um, I love the idea of being more comfortable with messes, you know? Mm. Like, um, I think a meeting is a mess. I think a monster is a mess. I think being human is a mess. I think all of this is a mess. And mm-hmm. and just like with all the racial equity education work that I do, you know, the, it's, I think most folks have heard the idea of getting more comfortable with discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's just really true. And so there are spaces in my life where I can I can be a mess 
you know, or I can actually be a mess and the, the, the tyranny of my self-control gets to relax and I melt and it's kind of gross. It's not clean and pretty mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm not performing for anyone, including me in those spaces. And sometimes those spaces are not with other human beings, you know, uh, they'll be out, outside with my feet in, in and on the ground or my hands pressed against trees or my fingers, you know, in and amongst the flowers or in the river. Um, but sometimes they're with people. I'm really, really lucky to have, you know, some deep, deep friendships in my life where, you know, I can, I can melt Mm-hmm. I can just melt and that that other person or our friendship, our connection can be a container to mm-hmm. just hold the big sloppy mess of it. And in that way, I think I, uh, I'm not, you know, they're, they're never saying, oh, you're not a monster. They're saying, welcome, monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I anoint yeah. your feet. Mm-hmm. You're welcome here. Mm-hmm. And that's so great because I don't know if I'll ever not be a mess or a monster mm-hmm. probably yeah. not because i'm a human being right um but yeah as far as the place piece you know i am a dual citizen i'm not only a u.s citizen um I there are that. yeah there are i and i'm a dual citizen with an eu country right which has its own complexities <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so i could leave potentially i could mm-hmm. leave the united states um and and, but I really do think that, that, um, that suffering, you know, no matter where you go, there you are. Mm-hmm. And that we, as a kind of human community, thanks to amazing technology and globalization and such, we're, we're, we can't run away from ourselves. You know, there's no a way to go away to. Mm-hmm. And, um, and though I may find myself in a in a place where laws and culture are more supportive of what and who I am, I do still think that, um, yeah, that that the sort of deep calling I have to to work in that space of listening and meeting and healing uh, would be relevant there, and. Yeah, I don't know. Does that answer some of your Yeah, totally. Some of your spaghetti? Yeah, I mean, I really love this idea of like the easily love this idea of the work of the the hard parts and the the mess and the suffering and um and really feel that about being here right now uh in this country and there's a way that with the you're going to die um work I've done for all these years, there's like a connection, you know, between especially what you said about this, like, "Mm, I forget the wording you use, but it rings to me as the, like, when we're forced to kind of let go of the control, you know, we think we have, or our mind wants to have or whatever, our ego. Um, And that there's, there's, that's a happening here right now, more than ever, I think, for more people than ever. Um, I really feel like I, uh, being a white cis male, um, I've just been kind of struck by this theme in these conversations lately, but it's this idea that, you know, when, when you're a white 
person or white cis male, we'll say just speak from where I am, this kind of like comfort in a country that likes take care of the white you know, community. And so you don't have any experience of things like falling apart, really, or yeah. feeling threat, really. Even though, you know, being alive is suffering and this death is inevitable and all that. But like, I grew up just not learning that. Uh, what I feel like we're really, um, as a bigger community, faced with or ne having to be confronted by uh, right now. And um, and for me, it just feels like what you described, like that's the place where we grow and expand and stretch. Um, and I can't stop wanting to be in that. Um, and so everything you share, obviously from your unique perspective, um, there's connections that I feel. Um, so thank you for that. I think there's like a moment I feel when I have I don't know why I'm kind of going with this line of, of thought, but I, I think there's something I feel about when I see people posting online about leaving, wanting to leave. Yeah. And um it might be my <laughs> it might be my abandonment issues. But um, but it's also like, well, this is like you said, like no matter where you go, there you are. None of this is going away. And I wanna be there. You know, I wanna be with the dying. Yeah. Yeah. Literally and Figuratively, you know. Totally. Yeah, I think that's, I, you think, I think you just put your finger on something, which is that like, no matter where you go, there we are, mm. right? That mm -hmm. I can't escape my interconnectedness and I don't want to. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so I think that there's something about this being my backyard, you know? Mm -hmm. And especially now I'm talking to you from Denver, but I live in Minneapolis and- right. I live right on the Mississippi River and it's my it's my childhood stomping ground. I was raised by that river and its watershed and I and it is my backyard and I you know my body recognizes the quality of light and the height of the cottonwood trees the kind of shadows that are cast by those old brick buildings and I um and there's plenty that needs to be done in in Minnesota and the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um for better or worse, this is, you know, this is the me that was that was built in this life. Mm. And so yeah. So yeah. I think I feel some kind of way too when I see posts about leaving. And I, I have so much empathy and compassion yeah. for that yeah, too, too. You yeah, know, where I'm sure. like, oh my gosh, yeah, we can only ever <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah and we can only ever do like, what yes. we have the capacity to do. <laughs> right. right. Um, You're right. And I worry sometimes that my community sees my increasingly um, well boundaried functional hours as a kind of leaving. Like mm. I've like I've stepped back from the table of constant availability for social mm. justice work because I actually have PTSD and have limited functional hours and need to like take time, Good so much time. Knowing that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, it's, it's tricky, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, take care of you. Mm -hmm. And then I also want to say, and take care of me, take care of us, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask kind of where, what, with the Roe versus Wade ruling, 
I want to be specific or then I have been with my questions. Um, I have a couple, but first I want to say like, where does this, this in particularly land with you? Not just personally, but in the work you do. I mean, I have like 15 tabs up of all the websites that somehow you're connected to like organizations, movements, your art, all that. And so I'm wondering if that question works for you right now. Like where does this emerge when you think about what you do get back to work doing when you've had a weekend like this? Yeah. Um, well, I think that the, what's, yeah, I think that the Roe v. Wade decision hits pretty much everything that I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, it intersects with pretty much everything I do. Bodily autonomy mm-hmm. intersects with pretty much everything I do as a non-binary person, as a person of color, as a person who's um, professional and and personal lives have so much to do with uh, systemic oppression and unpacking and understanding systems in the United States. Um, The idea of bodily autonomy or the lack thereof is um, deeply entrenched with all of that. And Mm -hmm. also with my art, you know, Um, I think I'm, I think I, come back to this idea of meeting a lot, just meeting and and active conversation. And when I used to own an art gallery down in in southwestern Colorado, I had to write a lot of artist statements. (laughs) And and so I would I kind of was able to distill and crystallize like what is it? What is art for? What's the artist for? Mm. Um, And for me, I think there's myriad answers, but for me it was, you know, that the artist um, kind of helps us meet ourselves and each other and the moment complexly, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so much of my art has been about the body and on the body, um, especially because so much of my personal experience is is about reckoning with my embodied experience, uh, which has been difficult. You know, it's been really hard for me to be in this little body, in this little life. It's hurt a lot and my body's gone through a lot. Um, and my body is is at turns invisible or just wrong, like hyper visible as a person of color, as a non-binary person, as a person socialized female who sometimes skews femme um, and then completely invisible because of those exact same things. Right. And then my disabilities are invisible. You know, there's just all this stuff. So I think that um, the Roe v. Wade decision is p- deeply personal. Mm. Um you know, access to, to abortion is deeply personal Mm -hmm. for me. Um, and then also it, it intersects completely with race and racism and systemic racism in the United States. And it intersects completely with the bodily autonomy or lack thereof of trans and non-binary communities, especially BIPOC, Mm -hmm. queer, trans and non-binary folk. So, yeah, I guess I just feel like, like, yeah. whoa, you know, yeah. this is just really big. And I mean, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, yeah. that's yeah, tomorrow. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow I have another, I have a current cohort that's going through a 21 hour uh, racial equity education series with me. And this is going to be on the table, right? We're, we're, it's a racially mixed group. And it's a group that's um, probably politically quite varied as well. And so how are we going to come together in a kind of transformational learning 
container that makes space for that kind of deep listening and meeting that makes space for just the enormousness of this without turning away the folks who, whose beliefs and experiences are radically different than mine, you know? Mm. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, um, this feels like another question that's going to be, yeah, everything, Ned, stop asking me questions that apply to everything that I do, but I still, and that would be okay. Uh, cause it's really powerful. I feel to hear you, uh, respond that way. Like I'm not surprised and I think it's important, but for some reason I, I'm, I'm compelled to wonder like the grief conversation, how it weaves through, uh, so much of this. I'll leave it at that. I'm wondering how you could describe how it does. You know, maybe with real, uh, the de- also with the deep listening um, for social change, I'm, I imagine. But I'll stop there. I'm going to just start answering the question for you. But I'm wondering how grief <laughs> kind of lands in the midst uh, with all, all that you do. And there might be a very specific yeah. way. It might be a very specific place. Um, but what's there? Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm really excited because this weekend I'm going up to the Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Center to do a, a BIPOC re- retreat for for folks of color who are environmental social justice activists, and it's the first time since I left living. You know, I used to live at a monastery, and I left in late fall 2019. Wait, like and how then long? COVID. Wait a second. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Wait, you, I love when you're like, you know, I used to, and I'm like, no. So wait, like, I kind of know you, can you talk? Okay, let's just stop there for a sec. Tell me about the monastery. I feel like you train, you, I don't know, what's the wording? Just tell me about the monastery real quick. Just this is a stop <laughs> on the what you just started okay. to get to. Okay. Well, I am <laughs> There's so a, many a things. practicing Soto Zen Buddhist. You know, <laughs> okay, sorry, say it again. I'm not going to cut you off, but I just cannot believe it. I know I keep making this joke, but I was looking through everything. Like if you go to your website and you look at the list of things, like it's emotional. There's so oh. many things. Anyway, Gosh, so. Gosh, <laughs> thank you so much. When y'all asked me to do this interview, I was like, why me? Oh you know, like, why, what on earth could I possibly bring to this podcast? I couldn't read um, all the so. things. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Like it's a no brainer. Um, and, and, and I would say even just for your heart and articulation, like how you, how you share, how you speak is reason enough, but to have it backed by like what you've been committed to with your life, that of course there would be a time when you need to be like, I need to draw some boundaries, you know, like this is a lot, yeah. you know? So anyway, I'm leading us in 40 directions right now. I'm going back to the pit <laughs> stop that we've taken Tell me, tell me again, the monastery, tell us about that. Yeah. Well, okay. Yes. So I, I am a practicing Soto Zen Buddhist pre, uh, practitioner. I almost said priest. I'm not a priest yet. I'm okay. going to be ordained in November. You are going to be. Wow. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and then I'll be in training, right? This, the, in this tradition, mm. you ordain and then you train. Oh, wow. Uh, but I've been, I've been practicing for about 20 years and mm. uh, kind of casually at first uh, and then more in a more engaged way. But really what brought me to the, to the kind of residential, yeah. living at a temple, living at a monastery was um, the 
election of Trump, <laughs> to, yeah. to be honest. Uh, I just, you know, I, had, I just felt like I hit a wall. I hit a wall. Like my shoulder was against that wall yeah. and I was rubbing against that wall as I tried to go about keeping on with all of the things. And, uh, and I, you know, it was rubbing myself down to the bone, right? I was just like, something's going to break, something's going to yeah. give. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know what's, you know, I, I think, I think even then I was like, I just hate myself. I just hate how I feel mm-hmm. and I'm doing so much and I love my life and I love my work, but there's just this like core, mm-hmm. this like monstrous feeling mm. molten core that that had this like the gravity of a neutron star just sucking me into myself and away from myself and I just couldn't show up anymore oh. and I was like I need to <laughs> I need to stare at a white wall on a meditation cushion in the dark for a couple months <laughs> oh, man, that you could know Minna I just am like to know what to do then. And I'm not saying you were like, this for sure is gonna, <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine you're like, I figured it out, everybody, I'm signing up, you know? But like, to know, to take action like that, oh, how significant to make yeah, that choice Yeah, it was scary. Mm, sure, Yeah, it was really scary because I was a business owner. I, I was in a partnership. You know, my, I was, it, I was stepping away from, from important things that were extremely nourishing to me in my life to go and just, uh, you know, just literally stare at a white wall for many, many hours a day. Uh, cause that's what you do in Zen meditation is eyes open. hours a day? Eyes open. <laughs> How many hours a day? Well, gosh, sometimes, sometimes it would be, let's see, 40 minute meditation, uh, sessions gosh sometimes there would be you know like 10 of them in a day Mm. um depending on what we were doing so just an awful lot of of (laughs) being completely immersed right and then in the midst of that um you know a lot of this broke open I didn't I you know a lot of the that pain and like just sitting with myself so deeply not turning away so deeply for for so many hours a day um which I can't I can't say is always the best thing for people you know I I think that that. just yeah yeah, sitting and deep diving in instead of kind of a a gentler approach um isn't always the right thing and it was the right thing for me at that moment and I got mm-hmm. the opportunity to kind of like step into the tangle of my own internalized depression and into my own despair and self-hate mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really sit with that tangle you know and, and maybe there was a bunch of gentleness there because you can't untangle a tangle fast the most profound thing that happened to me you know, on that meditation cushion during those first two months was uh, a a deep meeting of myself. You know, I I hadn't I'd been turning my arms, my open arms and open hands and open eyes outward for so long. Mm. You know that that I had completely left myself apart from that. You know, in in the tradition we. We say that we're committed to awakening with all beings, you know, the liberation of all beings. But I hadn't included me mm. in that mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. And and so I, you know, turning back towards this little one, 
and recognizing that, uh, that there is so, you know, I remember one evening with a friend crying and crying. I just had this complete kind of shedding that happened. And I looked at my friend and I said, you know, uh, they took my heart. They took, they won. They took my heart. Mm. They made me a monster. Mm. And it was just like this deep need to be like, oh my God, so much was taken from me. Mm. I was hurt so much. And I've gone to therapy and I've talked about it. But on some level, like I've never, I've never been able to just turn towards this little me and hold me. Mm. And, you know, just this constant feeling of having failed myself, of having failed the world, if I looked a little too close. But um, and that's where that beginning of the kind of seeds of what is, what do I mean when I say monster? Mm. You know, what is a monster? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you and, say they... What do you mean? Yeah, you know, in that moment, I don't know if I knew what I meant, but I think mm-hmm. in retrospect, it, it was sort of a like they, the the pervading cultural forces, right? Like, yeah. again, white supremacy, patriarchy, mm-hmm. colonization, that, and then how that showed up in specific, you know, being a sexual assault survivor mm. and being, you know, uh gosh, a survivor of, of so many uh, micro inequities and macro inequities when it comes to race. Um, all of these things, these things that are big blows and small blows that just add up to, like, for me, they added up to the a, a profound erosion of self and, yes. and a deep self-blame, you know? Like, I should have fought harder. I should have cared for me better. I should have interrupted this violence. I let me get killed. Um, over and over again, so many me's died and I let them die. Oh my God. You know, it was very much that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I had a really amazing moment with an elder there in the community where I was talking about this and I was like, I just don't know how to interrupt all this, all these ways I hurt myself and others. And then suddenly I stopped and I took a breath and I started sobbing and I said, what if it's not true? What if it's not true? What if I'm not bad? Mm. And just that, like, just that little bit of what if, just what if is kind of the core of practice Mm. for me. It's like, there's that little breathing room between Mm -hmm. me and myself. You know, just that little bit of breathing room to say, what if, what if this story isn't true? What What if I'm, yeah, what if I'm not, what if I'm not the me I was yesterday? Mm -hmm. What if? I never could be. Yeah. What if healing never looks like anything I could even imagine? Yeah. What if? You know? Everybody. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast with Minna Jan. I am. I have been. I am now. But I wanted to take a moment to just check in and ask for a little support. I'm going to be very specific this round of support asking and let you know that we could use a little refresher on our Apple podcast ratings. And I mean that we haven't had a comment in a while. People are giving us the stars, which we love and thank you. And you should do that too. But I love a couple fresh 
comments about how you're experiencing the podcast. And just be honest, we are here to receive it. Um, like I say, though, you know, don't be super negative if you're feeling upset or hate what's happening here. Um, but if you can be kind or even generously uh, wonderful with your loving on what you're going to die the podcast is in your life, that would be great. So it's super simple. Just go into the podcast app that you're listening to if you are using Apple Podcasts. And if you go to You're Going to Die, the podcast main page, just click on like that link in the app. You can go in and scroll down and find the place to add a review. And I just can't wait to see what you have to say. We read it. It matters. And we might even share it here on the show and say thanks to you. Like we'll review you. We'll review your review. So yeah, Apple Podcast people, I'm talking to you. I'm just going to stop talking for longer than you should during a broadcast because I want to get your attention. If you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, just take a second, click a star, write a few words, send it on through. It's like a love letter straight into my solar plexus. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the show. So I asked Minna if they had any thoughts on how we could create a special moment that's different from the rest of the episode to kind of hold us uniquely. And being that I met Minna in a writing workshop with uh, You're Going to Die and through producer Nick Jana, who also knows them as a writer. And also, I want to just say this, that if you have a sense now for how they share just when they're asked questions spontaneously, uh, can you can you imagine what the writing is like from this human being, this spirit, the the time of word crafting, what it would result in? It's It's the original way that I know them. And so then perfect here, perfect to share them this way here. And so we want to share an excerpt from their essay, them reading that excerpt from the essay, A River is a Long Soul. And it's held wonderfully per usual with music from Nick Jana. Some years ago, I spent 100 days at a monastery in the Los Padres wilderness out near Big Sur in California. The Tassajara Creek flows through that valley. It was common to hear drums along the creek banks and singing. It unsettled some people, but most of us got used to it. The creek remembered so much, and it had reason to be angry. I remember the man who washed the dishes in the shack that drained straight into the water below telling me that 99% of the water in your body is renewed every 50 days. Halfway through my time there, my blood remembered everything that creek did. We are never the same selves we were. In Minneapolis's third precinct, the Mississippi is our sole source of drinking water. In the 18 months since I've been back, the water in my body has been replaced 11 times. So many cave, dripping, echo whispers, old memories, cold bones. 
Lately, I've been discovering a capacity for hate, a clear and biting no. Glacial, behemoth, crawling slow, deep, and wide. A frozen river full of the marrow of leathery mastodons and those saber-toothed cats who lasted longer in North America than almost anywhere else on Earth. Walking under what remains of a riparian cottonwood corridor, I wonder if it's hers. If this is the water's hate. If it's teeth bared and lungs screaming. Stars clothed in gas flames and dust as they tower and tilt toward the surface wailing how... Could you? How could you? Incapable of being small enough to fit inside me, just borrowing it for a time. I know the river hasn't forgiven me for thinking I'm something above it. The watershed is always tugging, always rolling me up and down to its bed. Come away, submerge, float free, dismember, remember, come home. It has sharp, Stone teeth, a sharp stone tongue, bitter eyes packed with clay. It is agricultural runoff and concrete culverts. It is life and death twined together. It's a ghost running between so many worlds. One of my teachers as a kid said that, that the river is a ghost. It feeds and forms and changes worlds, but can you find it? A river is never there. You can never step into the same river twice. Is that Heraclitus? I stop under the Stone Arches Bridge on the Minneapolis side. I can almost hear the brown slide of the water beneath the winter white. I remember when we drove down to Shiprock, New Mexico, leaving our vigil on the shore of the River of Lost Souls, El Rio de las Animas Perdidas, in Durango. The Gold King Mine waste spill had turned those waters orange as traffic cones for days. We drove to the wilderness to talk to the plants in another watershed for a while. Get some rest. Get some perspective. Sleep under tarps with the hummingbirds. Grieve. We stopped at your friend's house in the driest land beside towering stones, and he told us stories as we sat sharing ham sandwiches. I can't remember what story he was telling, but he spoke of rivers. He said, a river is a long soul. It would carry on flowing, even rusting, even toxic, even charged with blood or changed. What is a river but change? What is change but a long soul? And I remember a stone falling in the glacial source within me. It takes a long soul to slip between worlds. It takes a long soul to be here and there and nowhere all at once. It takes a long soul to remain ever-changing. The only things I know that move in that way are rivers, ghosts, and grief. I have a really intimate relationship with death, and I'm only now beginning to have an intimate relationship with grief. And I think that an intimate relationship with both of those things 
is like absolutely what I need um, in order to mm. be human well and to be human with other humans well and to really meet this life, whatever it is and however short it may be. And, and I think that, 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 that's it that I, I wanted, yeah. I want to be in this conversation with you because this is a vital conversation. And, right. and I've done a lot of, of sitting with and writing about and exploring and digesting and working with this, like these yeah. relationships um, so maybe there is something I can say, offer in this conversation that's, yeah, yeah good medicine. Lands I there. I hope so. Yeah, lands there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you said that is one of your sentences that you shared in the little Google form I sent you, which is being one of the things you want to talk about is being in relationship training with death. Maybe that's the yeah. next thread. How do you feel yeah. in your work or personally you're doing that right now? Well, I think grief is a great entry point, which is that I never had felt like I had a relationship with grief and maybe never had really felt grief before I spent all that time on, on a cushion in silence and went through some loss uh, again, you know, like the loss of of a dear partner and friend, not to death, but just to an ending of our relationship. And it was a really big deal for me. And um, You made that choice then to to be clear that you stopped that job, your business. You stopped the business mm -hmm. and you stopped that, you you ended that relationship. That's how, that's what the monastery commitment asked or you, you, you needed to stop those things to do that. Yeah, more or less. The relationship ended a little bit after yeah, but um, but all of that is to say, I think you know, if, I think sometimes of grief like a labyrinth, you know, um, and not like the kind you get stuck in that's really scary, but like the kind at a at a at a monastery that you walk through mm-hmm. in meditation and discover, you know, as you turn with it, you, and have no no destination, right? You have no destination; you're just there in it. Um, but I felt like I was always stuck at the entry point to the to the labyrinth. Like, and I was really caught there at that threshold by that despair and self-hate, like really despair, Mm. tremendous, Mm. tremendous um, terror and despair and self-hate. And Mm -hmm. to be able to, to, you know, sit with those long enough, meet them long enough, sit in the tangle long enough that they didn't go away, but I was able to kind of become more porous and they were able to become more porous and I could move through my my terror and self hate and and despair and into that labyrinth and sit mm-hmm. with grief for the first time, mm-hmm. and and it was I I was like wow I've never been here I've never been here you know I've never grieved for what was done to me I've never grieved for the what was done to my ancestors I've never grieved and um, and that actually does. That brings me to the uh, to the question that you just asked, which um, ever since I was a, an itty bitty person, I've uh, seen and interacted with spirits, and uh, there's a, a kind of long tradition in 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 my lineage around uh, healing and kind of transition 
meeting death and, and supporting it. Um, and then realizing that, yes, I have some facility there uh, and I have been trained there, but I don't, I have never developed a relationship with grief. It was a real eye opener and uh, it felt like the entry point that I needed to be able to really step into gosh, this idea of, of becoming clergy, my goodness, right? Like so much mm-hmm. of the function of religion is, is to hold space for the transition yeah. zones, the edges of the, the river of life, you know, and death to really be there with people as mm-hmm. uh, new life comes in and life exits too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, honestly, I've just, I've always had a really strong relationship with death. And I think of death as, as an ancestor. I personify death regularly. And for me, death always has he, him pronouns. So I'll just say he and him. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there, my, my therapist recently told me that we have the same attachment patterns with our ancestors as we do with people in our daily lives, you know, oh, our parents wow. and friends and coworkers. Oh and I was gosh, like, explain it. I'm just like, that exploded. has to be true. <laughs> yeah. I just had my own little head explode. <laughs> so can you, would right? you mind putting, describing that a little more or, or kind of explaining your version of that, which you probably were about to do, but I, I got to hear a little more about that. Yeah. Well, you know, whatever patterns I have to, to living people in my life, you know, wholesome or disorganized or painful, um, just starting to recognize, gosh, I, I really do have those. I do have those same relational dynamics between myself and my, and my ancestors. And when I say that I think of death as an ancestor, I think that I've come recently to understand that it's, you know, they're, that death is ever present, right? The, the death is always with us and has been with every single one of the ancestors that are in my blood lineage, in my spiritual lineage, and so on. There's not one thing that is alive that hasn't been touched by death, you know? And there is not one thing that has died that wasn't once alive. Like there these, um, there's, oh gosh, yeah, there's just like not one space in my whole being not one, you know, molecule or atom of my whole physical body that isn't coming from some process or being that once was and no longer is, and now is me. And so in, in every little moat of me is death and the, the transformation of what was into what I am now. And, mm. um, and in that way, I feel like, especially my uh, Soto Zen Buddhist training, it's so much about having good manners. You know, it's so much about being able to fall to the level of my training under duress. And my training teaches me to be kind and move slowly and offer candlelight and incense and honor my ancestors and talk about how we got here mm-hmm. and to, you know, to, to serve a really well-prepared cup of tea and to to keep it warm and to to appreciate the steam rising and the ephemeral nature of flowers and you know all of my zen training is about impermanence of course and is about meeting death and uh and making space for him and mm-hmm. and being a really good host when death comes to visit and being a really good guest when death is my host and I think that a lot of, of my current relationship with, with death is because I came so close to dying. I had a, a 
very, very bad illness. Gosh, now like 13 years ago and, mm-hmm. um, and, and almost died and had to prepare, mm-hmm. I had to prepare to die and get all my paperwork in order. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, I, I, the, I worked with a lot of Ayurvedic and, um, like I worked with an Ayurvedic doctor. I worked with a, a naturopath and nutritionist. I worked with a person who does craniosacral therapy. And then I worked with all of my Western doctors. And what started and so, happening? Yeah, like gastroenterologist. What led you, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. What was well, the, the, the consensus was that I got a virus that shut down and damaged my digestive motility. I couldn't eat. And oh my gosh. so I almost starved to death. And um, and I, it was really cool that the, the Western doctors and the non-Western doctors worked together as a team, um, because I was in a, in an acute state of, of illness and everyone recognized that and we're like, what can we do? You know, what, what can, what can we do to support Minna? Um, and yeah. And so it was really prolonged. It wasn't a sudden almost dying. It was a slow starvation. And I feel mm-hmm. like there, there are a few people in who are, you know, privileged enough in, in the first world um, to have not been food insecure. And I'm one of those, you know, I grew up uh, with food security and didn't know um, starvation other than I, I do have, I am also anorexic. So I have a really complex relationship with food and had starved myself as mm-hmm. an adolescent, mm-hmm. but, um, but I had never been food insecure. And um, then suddenly to find myself unable to eat and, and dying of starvation, it was quite an experience and in a way really remarkable, you know? Um, and I had, a really, I, you know, I spent most of my days sitting in a chair in the sun outside. I was pretty, pretty much on my own. And I just came to this really great space within myself where every day I woke up with a sense of, of hope that, um, today I will feel better today. I'll be able to drink a little bit and eat a little bit. It, mm. And it didn't happen for over a year. Every day I couldn't eat oh, and I wow. couldn't drink, but I still woke up thinking perhaps today. Um, and somewhere in that I stopped hoping to get better. I stopped hope like fighting the illness. I stopped thinking I'm going to, I'm going to bash this illness in the face. We're going to figure it out. I'm going to get better. Um, because mm. I realized that my hope was this, <laughs> flip side of the coin of terror, right? I was terrified I wasn't going to get better. Um, And when I released both of those, it was just, I'm going to do everything in my power to be well today. (laughs) I'm going to do everything to cultivate the conditions to get it, to get better, to heal. Mm -hmm. And um, I choose to live, you know, that I think the turning point was Mm -hmm. that when one of my elders said, this is a checkout point, you get to die. It's okay. You can go. Or you can choose wow. to live. Um, yeah. And you, if you choose to live, you might still die. You might, you know, and you're gonna eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. if you want it, you got to choose it kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and I didn't want it. You know, I've never been mm. a suicidal. I'm so incredibly, incredibly privileged to be able to say that. Um, but I, I mm-hmm. didn't, I've never really felt comfortable 
to say the least, in, in my skin and bones. I felt wrong in my body, in my life. Mm. I felt like I was constantly fighting against the kind of particular tiny indignities of being in this form. And I hated it. And so to sit there kind of at death's door and say, hey, like, I see you, dear ancestor death. And like, thank you for sitting at the table beside me. And if, if it's possible, I don't want to go with you yet. And I'm going to choose this life. And oh my God, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was choosing to live. Because mm. not because I wanted to die, I didn't. But because choosing to live, choosing this life meant choosing everything that came along with it. You know, mm-hmm. all the terror, all the grief, all the self-hate, all the societal hate, all the systemic greed, hate, and delusion, all of the, all of it, you know, all the mess. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want it. I didn't want the mess before that. It hurt too much. It was so gross. You know, life felt so gross to me. Um, So that was a big deal. You know, I was like, yeah, "Yeah, all right, Mm -hmm. here it is. I take it. I'm saying, yes, I will to this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stop farming out my, my, anxiety and and pain and whatever else and say I didn't choose this I didn't want this and instead be like I did choose this I do Mm. want this (laughs) yeah totally that's so (laughs) powerful to hear oh my gosh yeah that's that's always my whole life I've had a relationship with death and and I've thought of him as a um you know as a companion honestly like I would go mm. on walks in the woods and be walking beside my companion death. We would talk. I would have conversations with my death. My death would have conversations with other people's deaths. Um, and, mm. and I would sit, I would sit with my death at, uh, in my mind at a, a, a kind of chipped kitchen table, you know, like one of those mid-century Formica tables. We would sit together the at the table, table. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. always the same table. And we would have little chipped teacups mm-hmm. full of, of tea and whiskey even when I was a kid, I don't know where the idea of whiskey came from, but it was there. And, um, (laughs) and we would just talk. And I had this feeling of like, gosh, I'd rather you be here right next to me having a place at the table than like to be hiding you away, pretending that you're not there. And so then to have like really a conference with my death for over a year, you know, just like, he was sitting with me on the porch. He was laying with me in my bed. He was with me as I got my twice weekly IVs of nutrients. He was, he was just there, you know? Mm. Um, I think that really, really just created a kind of architecture between me and, and death that led to later at the monastery an architecture between me and grief Mm. and, and then that grief being kind of like the, like the fluid through which I could connect with others, I guess, you know, like connect with other human beings around death. And, and yeah, I think even though this might seem weird, I think it really does come back to meeting as I keep saying, like, I think that um, so many Wait. of my tools as a human being are like facility with, with uh, meeting and facilitation yeah. and holding space and holding containers and, um, you know, and death is, is in some ways an, a no 
you know, like N-O, no. Mm. And I certainly hadn't been trained as a little person or even as adult, an adult how to meet and make space for the no, like mm. how to have appropriate boundaries, how to how mm-hmm. to say no compassionately but firmly, you know, and like a no mm-hmm. that's porous, that, that can meet and shift and change. And so mm-hmm. I think that is that's where the grief work comes in is like mm. the no happened. Now we need to shed and cry and change and transform and grow. And yeah. Oh my gosh, Minna, are you kidding me? Um, that was so <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> oh, Oh my gosh, I just need to take a second. Because I... I don't... After all these years, I don't feel like I've sat with death like you just described and I know everybody's different and I know it maybe there's some version of it that I'm not clear on that I have been doing but that lands really deeply in a part of me that hurts yeah um I'm I'm good I needed you to say that all of it but that's just the only way I can describe what it was like just to listen to all all of that um, and and maybe feel like the possibility you know like I'm not I'm not feeling like it hurts <laughs> but I'm not feeling like I'm feeling more possibility listening to you share a lot of things that are really landing right there you know like this this despair the hatred you know, like I, I couldn't even get through another interview because I feel like that's what was really present. It was great. It's really what was needed between me and this other person. But like we couldn't even, there's no interview to, to be had uh, for the podcast because like it was that that much was clear. And, and so then to have you be using those specific words, despair, hatred, and then to follow so much of that up with, the story, you know, what you just described on sitting with death, you know, and the know of it, you know, thank you for all that. Thank you for all that you've been through that you could come here and be here with me and tell me about it. Like you've just returned from all of that, you know, I'm just feeling really a lot of things. (laughs) Oh, I want to know. I think. Go ahead. You have something to say? I have oh, a question, I, but. Yeah, no, I was just thinking, gosh, that idea of like sitting with death or sitting with our demons or sitting with the monsters, the ghosts, you know, mm. making space, mm-hmm. holding a container. I love whatever that looks like, right? Like when you meet, mm-hmm. when you meet death, anoint his feet, you know, when you meet the monster, anoint his yes. feet. You know? when it, when you describe that part and, and death as, as a no to, I really 
you know, I know you asked for uh, your aliveness. You, you asked to be alive, but also like you held a boundary, like you said, like you said, no, you said, no, not yet, yeah. you know, but also you can sit with yeah. me, you know, like, <laughs> and death yeah. just being like, yeah. okay, <laughs> I can yeah. wait. Always. Actually, that makes me think of consent, consent culture. Um, like yeah, totally, totally. In, you know, like going to like t- going to a play party, for example, um, and where where lots of different kind of sexual engagement ca- can be there, mm-hmm. right? Is invited, and then how do you how do you navigate that? Like, if somebody says, you know, can I kiss you? And I and I want to mm-hmm. say no, and you know, so I can say no, and. I'd feel really comfortable with you putting your hands on my face, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's something, again, Mm -hmm. I just keep coming back to this idea of being, of meeting and porosity. Like my Mm -hmm. no might be hard and fast. It might be a wall, but often my no is a no to this. Here is my boundary. And yes to this, if you're willing to come here and to meet this. And yeah, good parenting. Death has been a good parent. A good ancestor. <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Another good way to describe it. Um, so I want to get I want to get a little clarification here because you know w- w- in your notes you describe and then I feel like we're kind of on our way to how this all ties into social justice work. In fact, I, I do think mm-hmm. you we've done some you've done some of that weaving already, but I do want to get to there. But before we do, I want to talk about the haunting, the PTSD mm-hmm. part of the near-death experience. And I'm wondering how it relates to, you may be like, I've been describing that to you all along, but I'm, I'm wondering if there's something else or anyway, what is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I was diagnosed with PTSD in, I think, I think it was late fall 2020. And it was such a revelation actually when my when my psychiatrist, my therapist, who's wonderful, um, I was talking about feeling so pushed around. You know, I felt so pushed around by my own emotion, by my own energy and my own capacity to do anything, you know. And they, my therapist, really strongly encouraged me to see a psychiatrist. And I was terrified. I was like, oh, no, I I have a really rough relationship with this idea of psychiatry and psychiatric medication and whatever else, but I went mm-hmm. anyway at, at the, at the end of the day, my psychiatrist said, you have PTSD. And I was like, mm, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Are you sure? That doesn't sound right. Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. you know, and it, when it was interesting, cause it was very much like, well, I, I haven't experienced the theater of war. I haven't experienced, you know, fill in the blank, the sure. things that historically, even like a couple decades ago, we thought of as like, like that's really where it comes trauma, from. Yeah. The things that, mm-hmm. right. Um, but, you know, the more I've sat with it, the more I've unpacked it with both my psychiatrist and my therapist who have been an amazing team and how incredibly privileged and lucky am I that I have that during mm-hmm. this time, um, the more I've begun to really understand what's happening, you know, what, what's happening in my, with my lungs, with my heart, in my nervous system. And um, in doing that, being able to uncouple my sense of self from that Mm -hmm. and move more freely within myself Mm -hmm. because of that. And, um, and it's just like that aha moment, like that I had at the monastery where I was like, what if, Mm -hmm. 
you know, what if it's not true? Oh, this is sort of a, what if it's not me, favorite. right? Yeah, what if, right. yeah, like what if, you know, I, I wouldn't blame myself for a major injury that I could physically see on my body, yet I blame myself for an injury that's deeply in my body mm-hmm. and that has, that's intergenerational and present. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And I think that how it relates to haunting, I love the, I love the word haunt. Uh-huh. I love the it's word so haunt good. as a place-based mm-hmm. word. And you know, like this is my haunt, right. my childhood haunt, mm-hmm. that there's some sense of a repeating presence here. And, um, and that's the thing is that for me, having PTSD is like being haunted by myself, mm-hmm. you know, that there, there are these Mobius strips, these loops of time and space and experience that is, are really difficult to break out of. And they are on repeat. And there's a way that um, only recently have I started to kind of disinter the, the me's that have been lost along the way, the me's that, that naturally kind of arose and dissolved healthily, or the, the me's that were slaughtered, the me's that I killed, the me's that others you know, erased to the point of non-existence. Mm-hmm. Um, the me, the me that died when I was sexually assaulted, the me that, you know, just these me's and to be able to say, yeah, I have died. These me's have died. There was loss. Parts of me were carved away. I have been broken. I've been broken to bits mm. and to not have this sort of like valorization of like, no, you're strong. You're whole. You're there. Minna remains. It's like, there's no Minna. Mm-hmm underneath it all they were never there they were always a myth and there's only this little person who's arising in this moment full you know fully with all the cracks and all the breaks and all the missing body parts mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and and really being able to you know yeah meet my ghosts the ghosts of me the ghosts of the me's who have been here and who've who've been carved away yeah. um is is the only way that i've been able to kind of like meet and release some of those hauntings, it, some so, of yeah. those loops. Does it make it not a haunting then? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, you, we see all that popular media, like about, oh, you meet the ghost and you say hello to it. And then it like, there's some sense of resolution and dissolving. Mm-hmm. And then it's no longer haunting right. that house or you mm-hmm. or whatever anymore. I think that's very true, mm-hmm. you know, and, and with PTSD and especially with somatic therapy, it's not so much about meeting a particular story mm-hmm. or a particular ghost all the time. But it's about like the lived, this like lived embodied experience of being haunted and recognizing when, when there's like, when there's a me within me that's out of place or out of sync with, with what's happening right here, right now, and being able to care for them, you know, really being able to turn towards them and care for them without needing to know them or understand them. And, you know, that, that's radical for mm-hmm. me. Like I'm a thinker, I'm a words person. Mm-hmm. I want to know the story and then I want to write it. And, um, and to be able to turn towards a ghost of myself and say, like, here I am with open arms, you're welcome here. Mm-hmm. And I see you and we're going to care for you right now. So you don't have to be so insistent, but you don't have to tell me anything about you. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to tell me your story and relive it. Like, you, you get to just be here and be honored. And if you're ready to go, you can go. If you come back, you come back. You know, just that kind of relaxed, spacious. Wow. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, hi, little ghost. We're going to take a bath. Mm. <laughs> hi, 
Hi, little ghost. We're gonna we're gonna go stick our feet in the river. Uh-huh. You know. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to Minajan. Go to minajan.com, spelled M-I-N-N-A-J-A-I-N.com. I'll put that link in the show notes along with all the links that I mentioned earlier. I'm not going to list them all again, but what I do want to mention because Minna asked me to, is two other organizations that they support work that is vital, especially right now, including the Spiral Collective is a chronically ill, disabled, queer, trans, BIPOC-centered, full-spectrum, reproductive, and healing justice and care work nonprofit. They are committed to eliminating barriers to abortion access by honoring bodily autonomy and collective liberation. Uh, The website will be in the show notes, spiralmn.com. That's in Minnesota. And Queer Space works with LGBTQ plus youth and their families, the broader LGBTQ plus community and local organizations to create a strengthened LGBTQ plus support network and reduce LGBTQ plus youth isolation, suicide, and homelessness. You can go to queerspacecollective.org to find out more about them. But again, go to minajan.com for sure to connect to so many good things. Nick, Jaina, how in the hell are you? (laughs) Wow, I feel like I've talked so long alone until I get to just say, hey, you say something. I'm the minotaur in the middle of the labyrinth. (laughs) Yes. Is that kind of a reference to Minna talking about labyrinth? Did you realize um, that, that could be? Yeah. Minotaur. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, I was thinking if if the Minotaur just had like some candy and he was like, look, I'm tired of being a monster, you know, mm. kind of, you know, wow. my feet. This pun and play on words deserves attention just a little <laughs> bit longer because I love the idea of Minna uh, uh, claiming the Minotaur. Yeah. And claiming the labyrinth as not a dangerous place, yeah. as not a place of lost, but like a place of being present. And so I really love that that accidentally came came up. Yeah. yeah. But you kind of feel like the minotaur? For you, if the minotaur yeah. is yeah, like I got in, in a good mood, I'm like, yeah. you made it here. Like Minna, so in a way, I made you. I made you dinner, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like let's let's get out of this labyrinth together because I totally. I'm not happy in here. I don't want to be the monster <laughs> in the labyrinth. Let's it can let's be this out. Yeah, exactly. Let's compare notes. You are a thing to get to because I'm always very committed to getting all my <laughs> other segments done, and that can be tricky and require re-recording and notes from you and just to give people a little window into that process. So by the yeah. time we get here, y'all. Uh, all the things mostly are done. So it is getting through the labyrinth to the kind of Minotaur like Minajan that is kind and welcoming and will make me hot tea and talk with me at yeah. a Formica table. So good. I'm glad we're here. 
Hey, I heard you went to the Ani DeFranco concert and got to meet Ani DeFranco. Yes, yes. Uh, it was um, just this last Sunday. It was kind of a big weekend. You know, Roe v. Wade, of course, overturned Friday and uh, just left me very anxious and feeling all the things that I'm sure you and our listeners can relate to or have their own version of. Uh, and the first show I went to to start the weekend off was Hannah Gadsby, uh, mm. which some of you might know the special Nanette really put them on the map as far as stand up comedy goes. But I wouldn't even call what they do that. Uh, it was a great show to get to after the news that day because there was laughter, but room for rage and the absurdity. And um, Hannah really held it well right out the gates. But then also it was like, a lot about their personal journey and story. And they have such a great way with their humor, layered comedy, better than uh, most comics I've seen in a long time. So that was really rewarding in a way that I needed because of the nature of the last few days. And then to, to add on to that, Ani DeFranco was two nights later. And I kind of went into it super pumped just to get to see them and be at a concert at the Fillmore, which I haven't done in years. I think I maybe saw Patti Smith there five years ago or something, which was also really powerful. I'll save that story for another time. But we, Ani and I had connected and talked about maybe meeting and, but I, we both acknowledged the COVID times. And so just even getting the concert felt significant considering all that. Yeah. And, and it really was, you know, I was no surprise in a lot of tears, but I was with a few women friends and my wife and, and really felt like I needed it, but also honoring them. And, and Ani had given us this reservation at a sweet little booth towards the front of the venue where we could really like sit comfortably and look down very nearby on this beautiful evening and even taken in the audience in their glow and emotion. And I got to kind of sit back and really make room for these women that I love to just be close as possible to her serenading all of us. And she didn't talk a lot about the news, really. Enough acknowledgement for it to, for us to kind of align with the fact mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And then it was this declaration at one point she made of joy. She was committed to in these spaces with the rest of her life to like use what she does to facilitate alignment and connectedness. And in my own words, I, I would, I would paraphrase and, and further define it as this huddling up that night that we could be together and acknowledge what really matters for all of us and the ways we share what matters and her songs said enough in ways of protest to honor the body and uh, our beings, especially the female body. And she's been teaching me like that since 1999, probably with, with her music. Yeah. And so I can't imagine a better concert the way I've been feeling after that news. 
And so, so, so the night was just fully incredible, like the best concert I've been to in a long time. And I mean, like longer than the pandemic, you know, really, really so good for me. And it reminded me of what we do, you know, what we shared recently with our in-person open mic in San Francisco, where it got reminded there, but it feels like I just keep needing the reminder. Like, this is the point we need to be together. We need to find these places to hold it all and not just grieve and rage and cry, but also, which I did, but also laugh and sing along and scream and hug and like hold each other and caress each other and take care of each other, tend to each other. And she's just like you and and so many of the wonderful musicians in my life because of you're going to die. So good at facilitating. Like I feel like much of my facilitation is informed by you, that like community of musicians. And she's like the queen of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had these weird, <laughs> so that was the night. And then I, and then I had these weird stickers that I didn't know what they meant and no one would tell me <laughs> what they meant. I kept asking like, what does it mean? Uh, and they just said, you can be here when everyone else leaves. But like, no, I, mm-hmm. I hadn't talked to Ani since I'd emailed her that week. And so I just didn't know. And then suddenly everybody's gone and this little curtain, you know, pops open and I get welcomed back in there. And that was just like, you can imagine, you know, really most importantly to have the chance to say thanks for the podcast episode that we put out with her. And then to add on to that, this incredible night that we had just been a part of it to, I've, I don't know, like other than my dear friends who I spend my life with, like you and Chelsea and, and Morgan and Rachel and two, the singer and the songwriter and the feelings parade and the endless list of musicians that I get to see after shows. This is a significant moment to mm-hmm. right away after a concert like that, especially, but also after the podcast to get to say, this is what you mean to me. And this is a hug <laughs> and <this> is <laughs> us in person, you know, oh man, it was really, really satisfying. And, and, and that's putting it mildly. Yeah. But I, I will just say, I know we just went on for a while and I want to, I'll stop and return to the minotaur of the labyrinth. Um, (laughs) But it is that, uh, that reminder really more than anything, honestly, is what I Mm -hmm. needed that night. Cause I'm just so unsure about right now what to do. And I just keep needing the reminder, like keep being together Mm -hmm. in the ways we have been for years, but also because of new reasons and maybe in new ways. Um, That was the biggest thing I got from the night which is saying a lot because it was huge to get to give her a hug and (laughs) say all these things to her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I've just learned habitually over the last couple of years to like not want to get togetherness because it wasn't possible for so long. Mm -hmm. You just build this habit of like, Oh, that's not a thing. That's not possible. And I've just had to like remind myself in the last few months, probably what kind of what you're saying like, oh yeah, we can do this. I mean, sometimes it gets canceled or it's compromised, but um, we can keep trying to do this and, and it yeah. is really worth it, you know, when for so long it wasn't possible or not worth it to me to, yeah. to try to go through all the things to try to make that happen. So yeah, I just, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I keep forgetting, Yeah, you know, but even lately, you know, I've gone into San Quentin a couple of weeks in a row and we just got an email. There's another outbreak already. And so we're not going to get to go in for a couple of weeks, but, yeah. but what I feel is like, okay, tell me when I get to go in. Mm. Like I'm bummed, but I'm also like, I've been through enough of like waiting. I'll wait again. 
Yeah. I'll do it again. We'll do something again. We'll we'll have our show in September, uh, our first curated event uh, in Berkeley since before the pandemic started. Um, a concert. We'll have our next open mic. We'll have our first workshop in person. You know, it's just a matter of timing, and also right now in a way that Minna really reminded me of and affirmed and as much as I've said about how much they do and how humbled I am and kind of like, geez, I, I should be doing more maybe. Uh, also I got the, I need to not do as much sometimes like mm -hmm. they talked about. Yeah. And, um, so the summer feels like room for that too. But after that concert, there's the hungry, like, when do we get to do what we do again together yeah. and, uh, ready and willing even with all the complications still and all the hard parts, you know, just a matter of time until yeah. I die. Yeah. It's, it gets to me too. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't go to that show or, uh, but I just watching YouTube videos of concert. I was just like watching, uh, Glouston, Glastonbury, the, the festival in England that was happening this last week. And, um, like a live stream or something. Bug again. Yeah. And yeah. getting that bug again, even though I was just in a, undisclosed city recently and did a, a very disappointing show <laughs> or just mm. the, the venue and the, the way it was presented was, was frustrating for like all the things that we want, you know, togetherness and feeling like it matters. And mm -hmm. in those moments, I'm sure, you know, this feeling in those moments after those shows, it, there's a bit of feeling of like, let's just not do shows again. Let's forget it. It's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. It's never going to work again. You know? Uh-huh. And I then it, <laughs> it seeps back in, like for, you just like watch oh. some, a good show or something. It's like, it uh, got uh -huh. me back in. I'm ready. Yeah. I want to do it again. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's good to share that with you and, and especially you having been such a part of getting that episode out and the work we put into it and making it happen. Um, cause it really it's does so cool. feel like a catharsis or a, a complete something complete about getting to have that, you know, and it connects back to the work we put yeah. into the podcast for sure it's so cool that that the full circle of that whole process mm -hmm. <laughs> what was the very first contact with Ani or her i had to have just written their manager you know yeah. reached out to one of their publicity peeps and miraculously got a reply you know that's so cool and you know from the episode which y'all should listen to like definitely go check yeah. out the Ani defranco episode if you haven't it's one of my favorites and i don't i mean that because of how she is not because of who yeah, she yeah, is yeah. Yeah. I've had people tell me like I that they read her memoir and they were like this she was more forthcoming in this interview than her me memoir. Me too. You know? I have heard that too. Separate of you. Yeah. Um which feels like significant and it and it's what I think is possible with conversations like this that is a version of what you're going to die is committed to, right? Is this like what is it to be really vulnerable? Like really quote unquote go there and be raw and real. And I think that's part of what we're curating in the podcast. We've talked a lot about it. It's like, what does it mean to crack open? What does it actually mean to know that this podcast is a place where I cry pretty regularly and know that that's a good measurement for it working and doing the things that you're going to die means to do. Yeah. Um, and Ani DeFranco's episode is a real pure example of that. And no, and now so is this. I actually feel that way about Minna's conversation. And so I hope y'all got as much out of it as I did more surprises, things you came here to get. Um, men also asked me to make a note and I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, their comment 
which I think it came in different forms, but Bayo Akamalafe has a, a piece he wrote. And if you don't know Bio, again, like I'll put this link in, in the show notes, you can check it out. He has a, a piece he wrote, when you meet the monster, anoint its feet. So the anoint its feet words that Mina kept referencing, that's where it comes from. And they wanted me to make sure you knew. And um, that's it, everybody. We did it. The labyrinth, exiting the labyrinth, sharing it with you. Thank you, Nick Jaina. Exiting the labyrinth arm in arm That's with right. the Minotaur. Exactly. And and arm in arm with all of your ear canals. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.